Welcome to the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast. I am your host, Mimi White. In this episode, we have Kelly Munger, PhD, who is also a licensed professional counselor and a national certified counselor. Kelly is a researcher at Fuel Ed, the organization we'll be mainly talking about in this conversation. And at Fuel Ed, she crafts and executes projects research projects that deepen understanding about the value of social and emotional development in environmental, in educational environments. Adding to this conversation is my good friend, Wendy Zacuto, who with her uh, years of experience, over 40 years of experience as an educator, serving as a teacher, parent support, childbirth educator, school principal, learning differences specialist, dance instructor, and more. Uh, she shares her classroom experiences that I'm sure most listeners will relate to and will be grateful because her experiences drew out a lot of interesting thoughts and ideas from Kelly that probably I couldn't have done on my own. Fuel Ed's offerings for early childhood providers are fully funded through a generous fellowship and in this conversation, you will learn even more than I'm sure you already know about just exactly why SEL development for educators is a central element of a school's potential to truly be a place of growth towards excellence for students. Thank you for sharing this conversation with us. And be sure to check the show's notes at the end of this conversation for contact information and wonderful opportunities that uh, there's no charge, for which there is no charge. So it's all good stuff here. Thank you again for being here. So here we are with Kelly Munger from, do you say Fuel Ed or just Fueled? You got it, Fuel Ed School. Okay, good. That makes sense. And uh, I'm here with Kelly Munger and my dear friend, Wendy Zacuto. So we are going to talk about what your organization is bringing to educators. And when do we ever hear about this specifically where educators are being taken care of? So uh, you're, you're uh, a psych psychologist or a psychiatrist? Tell me what you are. <laughs> what am I? That's a deep question. So, <laughs> um, here we go. Here Such we a go. bad way to start. But this yeah, is Wendy. Yeah. Wendy understands about all this much more than I do. So, <laughs> oh well. <laughs> well, certainly my first love as an educator um, started out as a special education aide in my early 20s, taught for years in China, did homebound education, um, and then went back to get my training as a therapist. So, therapist, yes. um, right. So I have an MA in counseling psychology and a PhD in special education. So I kind of sit right there at the intersection, but I do, um, a lot of clinical work with families and, and parents and children, um, as well as of course, advocating for educators at fuel ed. So I kind of combine all that work and, um, wear more than one hat <laughs> for good, sure good um it's such a it's such a broad field of taking care of people's inner lives so um I apologize for that clunky start there but I do respect what you do and what you're bringing so um I guess 
So basically, it seems that fuel ed is all about teachers and educators and school districts and getting the the educator side strengthened and nurtured so that they can give that fullness in the classroom to the students. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Our mission is about emotionally intelligent educators building relationship-driven schools. Um, And that first part of the mission is about supporting educators to grow their own wholeness. Um, Really though, in community and in and inside of cultures that are safer because of the work that we do. And so um, our training kind of takes both that sort of personal lens of you as an educator matter. We want to nurture your wholeness, your emotional growth, but also when we do this work all together, we can build communities of safety and cultures that feel um, secure. Mm-hmm. Right, because I'm not just going off by myself and going to my therapist and then coming back to this culture that doesn't know what I'm doing, trying to good. Exactly. That's a really, that's, we've had educators, of course, have that experience and that's really isolating, um, which is why the second half of our mission is so important because it's also about um, whole, really building wholeness and leadership um, so that they can support this work in their educators. Wendy, you must be having some thoughts right now. Yes. Um, well, just so that you know, I mean, I I was um, a teacher and a principal, and um, I have a MA in education and an ABD in um, in education as well. Okay. And I'm very pleased that I didn't finish because my daughter now is getting her doctorate, and we have seminar every, every day. <laughs> So I, it's like, oh, that's why I did that. <laughs> uh, because I'm retired pretty much now. And um, yeah, um, I feel like a few things. One is the idea of having a therapist and being in therapy while you're a teacher um, would have helped me a lot. I mean, I had three kids and I was doing all this work. I feel like there's parentheses around the time that I went back to full-time teaching with kids. Mm -hmm. And then when I stopped being an administrator, that whole is, is like a blur for me. I just was on, Mm -hmm. you know, get the job done all day long, every day and um, not much time for self-care. And um, then uh, at one of my schools, I ended up, getting this weird thing with my arm I had pain going up and down my arm and um, it turned out to be connected with psychological experiences and I swam went into therapy really full-time and I never stopped I mean I think if all teachers could be in therapy that would be a really good thing I don't I don't think there's anything that could be bad about that Um, but I do think I've I've taught in public and private and I've taught in magnet schools with really diverse, you know, uh, uh, school uh, makeups. I've taught in all white, you know, perfect little venues. And I, the common denominator through the whole thing is that most of the administrators are full of crap. They don't know anything about education. They don't know anything about how to support teachers. They're paper, paper pushers. 
they're they're people who want to support the status quo don't rock the boat i have horrible stories i can tell you if you want to hear them but that's sort of it's it's just a common thread that went through all the different places that i went um my husband is a head of school um of a private school and i have to tell you that that place is like a shrine for me they're doing everything right and so we have to make more <laughs> available to do that every place, you know, because I can see now that it's possible. So, exactly. So, um, what what kind of structures do you do you set up, Kelly, in schools that help teachers? Who there may be some that have some resistance to this idea of therapy, and sure. there are. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so I would like to hear about that because there's part of me that res, res, resists it too. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't respect that people get a lot of va- value out of it, but there is some part of me that resists it, and I don't probably should have that analyzed. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> let's hear from you. We need to hear more from you about you know the challenges that you're dealing with and and the solutions and the the victories that are happening for people? Yeah. So, well, you know, early on um, when Megan Marcus, who couldn't be here with us today, uh, actually founded Fuel Ed, really the idea was to essentially translate this, the science um, of psychotherapy into education, right? So that this idea that um, that teachers would actually all, like you said, your, your idea, Wendy, that, that every teacher would have access to a therapist was one of the original sort of ideas. And, um, at first fuel ed actually had a counseling practice for educators on site in Houston. Um, and really we saw, I mean, I could spend another hour talking about the data from that project where educators really, um, transformed their own personal lives through the therapeutic relationship, being able to tell their stories, being able to process stress, being able to develop that secure relationship with their therapist. On the other hand, though, even though that was really successful and really beautiful, and frankly, I I agree with you. I think that if every teacher had a therapist, that would be amazing because teaching is such human work. It is, you pour yourself out every day. And you do give yourself as really in a role of, um, you know, being a secondary attachment figure or really showing up and helping students be seen every day. So you're, you're doing this really deeply human, deeply brave and vulnerable work. But um, aside from resistance to just therapy as an idea, it's it actually for every teacher in America to have a therapist wasn't scalable for us, at least from within Fuel Ed. Um, And so we began to think about one, promoting the idea of actually schools creating structures where their teachers could have access to therapy, whether that's, um, you know, working with benefits, working with unions, working with um, different sort of sources of, of actually connecting teachers to their local therapeutic resources. We also began to experiment with a more scalable peer practice that we call stewardship. Um, and so we, we practice stewardship inside of Fuel Ed, so We've been doing it for years now. 
But essentially when you're at Fuel Ed as a partner, you always have a steward in the organization, which is someone that you meet with once a week for an hour. Um, and you talk about whatever is on your heart, your mind, whatever you're dealing with, struggling with, um, really bringing the stressors or whatever's going on for you. And because we've all gone through our own training, which trains us in empathic communication, we are able to provide peer support that's really high quality at a high standard to one another. Um, and, and so and focused on and, and geared towards the educator's experience and mindset and heart. Exactly. Okay. Right. So you're interrupting, but that's always been my, where I got caught because somebody, I just needed that focus of what was really my issue. Yeah. And someone who understands that, right? Exactly. Right. So, well, so this, so, so we've been doing this internally and we began to play around, I guess, two years ago, maybe with, well, what would this be like in schools? You know, could this really, cause this is so scalable and so. Um, it kind of does solve that problem of a therapist won't really understand what it's like to be an educator. And, and so we, um, we've tried it. Um, we tried it with a small pilot. And then this year, our fellow, we actually had a, our first cohort of fuel led fellows come through and um, just, we did qualitative focus groups with them only a couple of months ago. And you know, we, we gave them everything we have. We really wanted them to have every resource that we have at Fuel Ed. And one of those was stewardship. And 100% of our fellows said that was the most powerful thing we did this year. Um, Because they developed this secure, reliable, predictable space where every week they could talk about what was challenging them as an educator, what was triggering them, what and even how that related to their own stories and their own um their own histories right and so um so uh, that's sort of a long way to say that I think that you know it's a both and where we want to see as many teachers who need it have access to therapy um in terms of with a licensed professional like myself um but we also think that that practice could be complemented um, with peer support happening, um, and well, why not every school in the country? <laughs> well, my, um, my experience with peer support um, is that in the public schools that I experienced, mm-hmm. the level of fear among teachers is really high, and um, fear of what? Fear of people finding out that they don't, they're not perfect. They don't know what, perf- what, what always to do. Um, fear that things might change. Um, one of the magnet schools that I went to, um, I only stayed a year because it had such a toxic um, culture. Yeah. Um, not a single person came to me as a new teacher. I mean, I was an experienced teacher, but I was new and there were eight of us that started the year None of us had anyone come up to us and say, do you need anything? Can we help you? How can we work together? You know, everybody was so stressed out with just getting their feet on the ground every morning. And um, I really think that a lot can be generated from um, an administration that cultivates team, a team 
approach um, for, for social emotional, you know, stability for teachers, but also just for the nuts and bolts of it. I mean, I'm telling you, I had to fill up my whole room by myself with a little, you know, library cart because I got a new room that had just been painted. And I was just like, really? <laughs> no one's going to help me. And I, you know, ended up going in, you know, rooms and pulling stuff out so I could have stuff and later found out that, they, that that stuff was personal property that the teacher, you know, two doors down was storing there. I mean, just just common information, you know, and I think it's really typical in public schools for people to be so isolated that they don't even think that there's something wrong with that. Yeah, it's really normal. It's really normal for educators to give, give, give and not receive and not have really the space or the leadership or the structures to be able to negotiate their own needs, which Mm is key to being a secure human. Um, Mm -hmm. If you have no voice to negotiate what your core needs are, then you're going to feel unsafe. Right. Um, And and unsatisfied. And, and that's right. And unsatisfied. Um, You know, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. I'm married to an educator as well. So uh, married to a, a science teacher of 21 years. Um, and so I, I also have that sort of perspective of living with a classroom teacher. And um, because he's been kind enough to follow me around the country in my academic career, he's also taught in a lot of different contexts. And I think he would agree with you that the le- leadership is is everything in terms of how how safe you are. And, and even to my point about stewardship, the more, the safer the leadership is, the more successful stewardship would be right. Because there isn't a fear-based culture. People feel like they can open up to one another, like they can trust one another. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was, I was on a podcast a couple of years ago and someone asked me, well, what would, what what is one piece of advice you would give to a principal? And I said, go to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, figure out what your triggers are. Um, so that I you- would even say, go visit your teachers, find out what their problems are. Yeah, you know, try to. I had a parent come up to my to me the first day I was at school at this one school, and she she was um, known to be kind of a troublemaker kind of person. She'd had a, a very violent background in mm-hmm. her family, mm-hmm. and. Um, she started screaming at me. And so I went to the principal and I said, you know, can you give me some clues what the background is, how I could her daughter was in my class. We ended up very good friends by the end of the year, but the principal said to me, I'm not kidding. Let me tell you what to do. If she happens to come into your room and you feel threatened, just move closely over to the button that you have to press to let people know what's going on in the, in your room in the office and and someone will come help you. Well, I can't. I mean, no, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> right. Right. You wanted, wanted to help to. with how to deal with the interpersonal situation. Yeah. And yeah, it sounds like your leader couldn't give you that. And he was a pretty nice guy, you know? I mean, yeah. I just I think mm-hmm. they're just not well trained. They just don't under they're they're conception of what being a principal is out of sync with what a teacher would would want in terms of Mm. you know 
That's a really powerful statement. (laughs) Helping to facilitate a, um, a team building kind of, you know, let's help each other kind of situation, you know? So Kelly, what is, is all of this ringing true for now? Because that was maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago with Wendy. Is that still, is the climate changing, softening? What's your experience? Hmm, that's a great question. My experience is that we are definitely at an intersection, I think, um, in education in the U.S. Obviously, the last two years have been extremely destabilizing on more than one front yeah. um, between confronting systemic racism, confronting the pandemic, um, confronting this inequity in how schools um respond to the pandemic and how both students and educators were cared through cared for through this process um through this really this this trauma i think that we are hearing uh the good news i guess we are hearing more and more at more and more leaders say my teachers aren't okay help me yeah more way uh way way more than i feel like when i first started working with fuel ed we were sort of like a little yeah. edgy, you know, we were a little edgy in our approach, um, a little on the fringes, kind of yeah. um, thinking ahead, maybe. And then yeah. last two years, it's like whew, time moved really quickly. And all of a sudden, people are coming to us and saying, what do we do? Our culture is a mess. I don't know how to care for my, my teachers. Um, and so um on the other hand, I think that the, while of course I'm a huge proponent of self-care, I think that to a point you made earlier, Wendy, that we have to think really, really careful about carefully about the difference between self-care and collective care, or just, um, I think the, the biggest investment we can make right now is to make schools safe cultures and to help build social bonds inside of schools which is a form of care for educators. Um, but I do worry that the focus on like, yeah, it's like, make sure you take a hot bath or get enough sleep at night. Those are great things, right? But they aren't systemic solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the climate, I do think the climate's shifting. I'm, I'm really thankful for that um, because I think that there are more and more people who see that really a leader who is able um, to show up as a really self-aware and empathic human is going to build a safer, more effective school culture, which is going so, to have cascading. So I agree with that. And I think the other piece of that has to be, how do you help them be effective? In other words, how does it translate from being the, the principal was a nice man. I mean, he was very, when I would walk into his office, I felt supported for that minute, but he did nothing to change my, my world. Mm. So it has to be the, the combination of, of giving principals sort of a crash course in what it means to be a teacher, something from the teacher's point of view, maybe even getting teachers more involved in helping educate principles as that you know on their path or something you know yeah I I don't know well I I, I'm working on an article right now and one of the 
points I'm making is to, to encourage administrators to shorten the distance in the hierarchy between them and their teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at Fuel Lab, we have a flat hierarchy, flattened hierarchy. We work in, in a, a teal style, if you've heard of that organization. So we don't have um, a traditional hierarchy. And uh, I think- Is it that, always that way? Um, it's been that way for, I guess, four or five years. Most of, it's been that way for quite a while. And you it called started it out what? more traditional. Okay, and you called it teal? What'd you call it? Mm-hmm. Teal as in the color, T-E-A-L. Okay, and that is an acronym? Um, it's just the color. Um, so it's, it's just the name used to refer to organizations that have a more flattened hierarchy. Okay. I'm that. sorry I interrupted you, but I, that, I love that. And I, I would love to go on that more, but can you finish your thought that I interrupted you from? Yeah. So, um, just saying to, to your point, Wendy, that for, um, administrators to think about what would it look like, even though you are working within a hierarchy, that's very clear. And um, what would it look like to shorten the distance between the top and the quote bottom of the hierarchy? And I think what that looks like practically is probably um, a lot of conversations, relationship building, consensus building, um, spending time with educators, both in their classroom and asking them what's going on, what's happening, um, what do you need if things were better? Giving them a place to go to find the answer. I mean, his, his th- that conversation that I related to you, he meant well. He just didn't get what I was saying and didn't have a clue as to how you build a relationship with a with a person who is a potential. You know, at the end of the year, she brought cases against five people at the school. And I wasn't one of them. I had no idea that I was in the social <laughs> category, <laughs> but I guess somehow we figured it out how to work together. And, um, but it's sad. It saddened me. And, you know, there were a lot of new teachers among the p- teachers that left at the end of that year. So that was a lot of turmoil for that school too, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and there I- is a difference between being nice, right. And being able to actually communicate empathic understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, or, or be, be facilitator to actual change, the actual collaborative problem solving, actually being able to, uh, generate creative solutions exactly. that, that both parties participate in. So one of the things that you, one of the words that you just mentioned that I was going, Oh, boop, 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 was time because what you're talking about is going to take time. So how does how does an administrator, how do the teachers feel like, what, how am I going to do? I can see how the teachers would feel like there's no option about this, but how do the administrators find the time, make the time, prioritize the time? Right. That is, that is the million dollar question. Um, and certainly that is the feedback that we've received over the years is, um, gosh, I'd love to do this. We don't have time. Um, we don't have time to do this work, but I think that, I think it actually comes down to values and priorities, right? So, um, because the schools that we work with who do find, who do make the time tend to be prioritizing teacher wholeness, um, and simply deciding, making those intentional choices 
to use what professional development, what, you know, PLC time they have to devote to teachers actually feeling nurtured and supported. Um, Whereas I do think that, you know, broadly speaking, the SEL movement has been so student facing, yeah, which is, um, you know, has its own merit, but again, teaching a curriculum is so different from actually developing the inner world of an educator. And we would argue that um, spending spending that time prioritizing that investment within educators, well-being and wholeness has a larger return on the investment in the long run. Um, and so don't hear me saying that, <laughs> that I'm against student face. I love student facing SEL. Yeah. Um, but I think that what we do enhances, complements, optimizes, whatever word you want to use, that whatever it is that educators are being asked to do day to day. The analogy that just came to my mind was me trying to teach algebra to my students, and I don't quite have those skills yet. Exactly. Exactly, right? It's so I have to do my homework. I have to become (laughs) competent. Yeah, exactly. And then we all win, and we all move forward. Mm-hmm. And we, we've had some, we've done um, a lot of uh, just follow-up reflection with our, with people that we work with, educators that we work with and the things that they tell us about their growth, you know, just through a three-day retreat or whatever program they had access to is, it is incredible. It's, I mean, a, a, a fairly large percentage of teachers tell us that they sleep better (laughs) after the program. And so I don't know what that looks like in terms of their life um, satisfaction, but I think that that's, that's important. They're telling us that they're going to therapy, that they're sleeping, that they're feeling more regulated throughout the day, and that they're more aware of which students are triggering them and why. Mm. Um, And with that awareness, they're able to not let that trigger affect their behavior toward the student, which is the big aha for us in terms of the relationship between adult and student SEL is that when a teacher can understand that a student is triggering them because of their own story, they can actually breathe through that moment and begin to see the student for who they really are. Because of the teacher's own story, that student is triggering me. Exactly. Super clear on that. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so that's where we, we've had more, a lot of educators say something along the lines of I'm seeing my students through a new lens Uh and that's through the lens of an attachment story. Right. So it it does work both ways actually. Right. Because a student who maybe is having a lot of struggles with their behavior, when you begin to understand that connection between attachment, attachment stories and behavior, um, that actually brings a teacher into compassion and helps them stay in compassion. Okay. Um, I'm sure Wendy understands all of this much more than I do, but I, I, this is Lewis Casalino work, right? Mm-hmm. Attachment. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a specific example mm-hmm. of this? Like yeah, sure. a teacher, the, the triggers go off and then the attachment, just that whole, I'd love a real scenario A to Z. Okay. I'll give you a real one. I'll give you one for my own life. Um, how about that? Wonderful. We'll with vulnerability. So um, for me, I'm thinking of, so I've spent a lot of time in early childhood special ed classrooms. 
um, that's sort of been where I've spent the most hours. And um, so I'm thinking of a student who we we would pro a lot of us would call what I'm putting this in air quotes for those of you listening um, is whiny. Oh yeah. Um, really, really whiny. <laughs> and so melting all day is the kind of the vibe there. Um, and so having done my own attachment work and realizing that in my early childhood, I experienced, um, more than one hospitalization. I had a lot of med early medical trauma. And so, um, there is a certain looking back only as I've processed this as an adult, there is a certain amount of, um, kind of pull, almost pulling myself up by my bootstraps, even as a young child of kind of like, be strong, be brave. You're going to make it through this surgery. You're going to make it through this recovery. Um, and this feeling of being both weak and also needing to hide that and be strong at the same exact time, which, you know, my husband can verify that this is, this stance has followed me to this day. Um, or this sense of feeling internally weak, but needing to be externally strong. And so mm. this child melt, you know, melting to me, that almost speaks to my body from his body to my body says like, I'm weak, help me. And I'm thinking as, as this, per, this, per, this child's teacher, I need you to be strong. And this is all happening unconsciously. I just feel it sensations in my body of I'm triggered. I'm annoyed. Why can't he just be quiet? Um, and so that is stirring me up internally. He stirred up internally because he has a real need. And speaking of his story, um, this child, let's just say I'll, I'm anonymizing this, but has a history of trauma and has a history of his needs not being met when he needs them to be met. And so, of course, he's um, really activated bringing his needs to school. And so you can see how my story, I need you to be strong. I'm being strong. It's dangerous to be weak. And his story, my needs aren't met. I need more. I need a lot are hitting against each other. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm becoming less emotionally available. And therefore, he's becoming more upset. <laughs> and you can imagine in the real world, if I'm not aware that I'm triggered by his behavior and that it's about me and not him, ooh, I can't regulate myself. I can't calm down. I can't take a deep breath. I can't even say to my co-teacher, Hey, can you, can you deal with this for 10 minutes? I need, I just need to breathe for a second. And then I'm going to come right back. Yeah. Um, for that sense of, no, we are just two triggered humans trying to make it work unless I, as the adult, am able to really understand what's happening for me internally. Wow. Um, because once I become aware, I can regulate, I can sure. re-regulate myself and I can recognize that he's a child with a story. <laughs> and I was once a child with a story. It's not even judgment toward myself. It's compassion for what I went through. Sure. Um, and the more I practice that, the more it kind of all comes together. Right. And I become very, very separate from that child in a healthy way of, yeah, you bring a story. I bring a story and I'm here to be emotionally available, consistent for you. 
where does that word attachment come in? What does that imply? Right. So attachment is really just a very broad term. Actually, I'm looking at the handbook of attachment, which is holding at my computer. It's very thick. <laughs> it's about, uh, we're at about 75 years of research and attachment. Um, but essentially it just refers to the nature of the relationship pattern that we have with our caregivers. And so, um, and, atta- you know, so there's a whole body of science around attachment Um, and essentially when I say secure attachment, I'm really referring to a relationship that feels safe where you feel seen and where, you know, that you can rely on that caregiver to soothe you when you're not feeling safe or when you have a need. There you go. If a, if a student comes to me and I'm able to stay regulated, which means just to stay calm, even though I'm stressed. Um, if I'm able to help that student feel soothed, then I'm really being a secure attachment figure for that student. Whereas if I withdraw or become annoyed or withdraw my emotional availability, I'm being an insecure attachment. Um, and so really at Fuel Ed, we want to help all teachers grow towards secure attachment because it is a spectrum. It's not like, oh, you are, or you aren't. For sure. Um, we, we humans are really messy. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of times you can be really secure for some students. And then if there's a student who triggers you for whatever reason, right. Um, you might, you might withdraw from them or you might be reactive with them or irritable with them. Right. And they of course know that, and that erodes the trust between the teacher and the student. Um, also known as the attachment. I think you can Attachment and trust are very, very closely related. Absolutely. And then satisfaction and good night's sleep. (laughs) Exactly. Because it all just works together. Exactly. Exactly. One big piece. So, um, so you're going into different, so you were, you started out in Texas, right? Fuel Ed started out in Texas in all Mm -hmm. the different school districts in that entire state. Am I right? Or just no, not in the entire, I mean, we are, we will, we are a nonprofit. So we will work with anyone who wants to come um, partner with us. And so we started out working with a lot of, and still work with a lot of districts in Texas, but okay. now um, we expanded beyond Texas and work with districts. And I don't know how many States, but a lot of States <laughs> um, online or, or in person, both. We do both. Okay. Um, so that really is just tailored to the partnership. Um, uh, I believe all of our programs right now can be virtual, but we really, um, we really try to pay attention to, I mean, obviously COVID has driven that we were 100% virtual a year ago. Um, but we try to tailor what we do to the district's needs. And so some districts are like, we really need in person. And, and so we obviously, um, do that with safety precautions and then some districts, um, it's still working better for them to do virtual. So we do both. Mm -hmm. And all grade level teachers with all grade levels. Mm -hmm. Yep. Pretty, I mean, (laughs) pre-K all the way up to, um, actually we, um, our fellows, our fellowship this year is early childhood focused. Um, And so we actually have infant toddler teachers in our fellowship. So I would say infancy all the way to college 
we have worked with anyone who is, is an educator, anyone who's really serving as that secondary attachment figure. But those people don't have a lot of money to play with like preschool teachers and things. Um, right. That's, that's why the fellowship is fully funded. So that was part of the reason that we focused the fellowship on early childhood is because our participants are participating for free. Um, and so we are uh, making that investment in the early childhood sector. And also we are um, trying to empower early childhood folks to be able to do what we do. Whoa. Whoa. Love my early childhood people. Yes. Oh, wow. I mean, oh. <laughs> I noticed that you're offering, you offer, you offer a workshop called Expanding Your Communication Toolkit. Oh, expand. <laughs> is that Empathy School, I assume? Yes. <laughs> um, I just noticed that on the, your website, which is just a wealth of, of information and inspiring options to explore. But uh, this one really grabbed my attention. Do you, do you want to share with us about that? Or? Yeah, so we, um, we do a one-day workshop called Empathy School. That's all about secure. It's called, it's called Empathy School. Empathy? Em- empathy empathy. Um, okay. Empathy school. Sorry. Okay. Uh, empathy school. And that is our one day workshop that essentially teaches the sort of the brass tacks of secure communication. Um, so being able to both communicate empathic understanding of someone else, but also to, um, to be able to stay aware of how you're feeling um, when you're having those hard conversations or showing up for someone as an empathic, empathic communicator. Okay. So forgive me if I'm just, I just feel like I'm saying a whole bunch of stupid stuff in this conversation. (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) But um, there's something about me that doesn't mind asking dumb questions because I really want to know the answer. So here I am doing that. Um, Love it. Sometimes you'll call up the, like the Apple person, you know, on your Macintosh. Uh-huh. He'll tell me, I really understand how you feel. No, you don't. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's just this empathy training sometimes that just, I know that you're not doing that, Kelly, but what are you doing? That's not that, you know, I, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. I do. I hate that. Yes. Oh, we would probably call that an empathy blocker if someone Ooh. says, I really understand how you feel. Oh, no, you um, don't. Yeah. That's why we talk about empathy as the ability to communicate your understanding how someone how, how someone else might be experiencing something. And so, in other words, if you called me and said, my computer is not working and I need your help, I would say, oh, it sounds like you're frustrated (laughs) because that's really what I'm hearing in your experience. That's very different from me saying, I understand how you feel. Um, I'm actually trying to use my um, what's called, well, I won't get too deep into the science of that, but I'm using my ability to sense your internal world to the best of my ability and to communicate that back to you. So I'm really just wanting to be do it in a way that leaves the door open for the other person to say, no, that's not exactly right. You know, that it exactly. becomes a conversation. It's not somebody just labeling that. Yep. Yes. 
So even sentence stems like it sounds like, or it seems like are, are, I think communicate more of that open door of you're able to say almost, but actually I'm not even frustrated. I'm just sad about my Apple computer. And at which point I would say, oh, okay, I get it. So it sounds like you really are just sad. Um, and versus me uh, taking that stance of, oh yes, I understand exactly what you're going through. Let me tell you about the time that I had an Apple computer um, yeah. Yeah. that we would call that empathy blocking because I'm taking the focus off of your experience and putting it on mine, right. which doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel safe. <laughs> um, and there's so, no forward motion there, you know, I mean, I want to solve my, I want the problem to get solved. Exactly. So, so what happens in this expanding your communication toolkit? I mean, I love that because we all know people that, you know, they're just kind of fuming and you're trying, they want to connect, but how do they get the vocabulary? Is that what you're talking about here? Vocabulary or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we walk, it's, you know, a one day workshop where we walk teachers educators, really leaders as well, through the process of learning about what, what, um, what essentially what real empathy is, because what you were describing in your example, isn't right. Not communicating, understanding. Um, I would call that even like maybe pity, which is different, (laughs) different from, oh, poor you can't understand your Apple computer right? That's not empathy. That's pity. And so we actually start or, or by condescending pity. Even, condescending. Know. Yes. Yes. We actually start by unpacking what are the different ways that people sort of unwittingly and unintentionally block opportunities for empathy. Mm-hmm. And then we actually take them through a very scaffolded process mm. to learn how to essentially commit to radical empathy and mirroring which is what I was trying to do for you and your Apple computer. Um, and, and, and essentially teaching educators how to simply mirror versus, you know, another empathy blocker that teachers use a lot. And I, I taught empathy school a few months ago, so I'm fresh with it where um, I asked them like, what's your biggest empathy blocker? And they said um, at like 80% of the class said, um, fixer upper, so they called it, which is where you immediately try to fix someone's problems without first hearing them out um, and moving in teachers, right? Um, we are like, we want to get stuff done and we want to, yeah. you know, help people. We want to help. Right. And that's well-intentioned. Guilty. But guilty. Yeah. Yes, me too. We're all guilty. <laughs> yeah. Um, but really what you find when you begin to commit to a radical posture of empathy of I'm really listening and I'm really going to mirror is that people began to find their own solutions. They began to get creative because they feel safe. And at that point, you're almost a witness to the problem solving process. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe you partner with that person and maybe they invite you into that problem solving. But when someone is upset (laughs) or talking about something really important to them, they don't want you to jump to solutions right away. That's an empathy blocker. And so those are the types of conversations we have with educators, unpacking empathy blockers, and then teaching what does it was really a four-step process of what it looks like um, to actually provide that empathic understanding. Um, I see, I see such value in what you're doing. Um, 
because having you know lived in in schools for <laughs> most of my life <laughs> There are so many pieces in the structure of ineffectuality, if that's a word, or (laughs) ineffectiveness, whatever, um, that it seems like what you would do is kind of carve a hole in the middle of that, that allows for things to shift a bit. And that everybody would kind of start looking at things in a different way, even though that might not be all of what you do that you sort of start things in motion so that the schools, the school districts, the principals, the teachers can have some, some breathing space around the, the monumental problems they face every day. I love that the tunnel, the breathing space, right. To actually be able to have those conversations mm-hmm. and it be um, safe and that you would walk away with this feeling of like, well, she got me or he got me. Mm-hmm. I feel, I felt heard, mm-hmm. um, that I kind of just, if I were to summarize, I, I feel like, uh, we could change schools kind of one conversation at a time if we were able to stay in empathy. And again, that's not the same as pity, um, mm-hmm. or as some or compassion or, or compassion. It's not the ooey gooey feeling necessarily. It's, it's a radical commitment to validate someone else's experience. Mm-hmm. And to try to understand it, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, different from how a lot of people think of empathy. Yes. Um, but it allows for, it actually allows for genuineness. It allows for collaborative problem solving. And it uh, certainly within our internal culture, what we would say, it, it allows us to stop um, hiding, lying, and faking with one another. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which we call HLF. And we're pretty sure there's a lot of HLF going on in schools. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, th- this mother that I was telling you about, um, everyone was so afraid of her and um, mm-hmm. her daughter was a very outspoken child. And we had a, a pretty good relationship. And one day I, I was talking and she was in the back of the room and I said something and she shouted out, Mrs. Zakudo, you a liar. And I went, really? Do you want to go back on that at all? And she said, no, you're a liar. And I just very quietly opened the door because we had no co-teachers in those days. I opened the door between the, I said, can you, Mike, to my peer, can you come watch my class? I said, we're going to go call your mom. And she said she got very tired, you know, and I walked her to the principal's office because, of course, he wasn't there. No, no one was ever there. And we used the phones and um, the mom said, let me talk to my daughter. (laughs) I handed her the phone and then she gave me the phone back and the mom said, thank you so much for caring enough to give my daughter that feedback. (laughs) She said, um, (laughs) she said, you call me anytime. (laughs) And the little girl, I never had a problem with her again, but it was like, you know, sometimes you just got to get creative in a situation like that, but it just broke through, I think, mm-hmm. just that being that honest and, and whatever it was that I didn't see her as an obstacle, you know, and I think everybody else did. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, sometimes you just get lucky too. <laughs> Well, one of my favorite, um, the circle of security is an intervention. Um, and they, they kind of talk about secure attachment 
is being able to be big, wise, kind, um, and strong. And Mm -hmm. I think that you are talking about how you were able to be secure for her when you Mm -hmm. were able to add in the the strong part, right? I'm going to be not just kind, not just soft. That's really, really important, but I'm also going to be honest and strong and have boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, And that again, coming back to this idea of secure attachment, isn't just being nice Mm -hmm. and warm all the time. It is also about being willing to be wise and strong and boundaried in our relationships. And two words that are coming to me are to be real Mm -hmm. and respectful to the other person and to yourself. Mm -hmm. Like respect is like so huge, you know? Yes. You know, and that was such a respectful thing that Wendy did with that child, you know? She, you know, it wouldn't have been respectful to, you know, but here, let's, we can take care of this. I mean, that's a respectful thing to do. Let's, let's, let's turn this ship around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because Wendy knows she's not a liar and she knows what the child needs. And then we're all together on the same page and we move forward, you know? Right. You know, Mm -hmm. so essential and we don't see it enough in schools you know and it just hurts me so much because if if we could really respect each other for what we're there trying to do to the best of our abilities and if we can support each other in that direction of trying to support the kids and just getting this whole thing connected together where we support ourselves and each other and the kids what would we accomplish? What would, what would this country be like if that was happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For real, not for real. La, 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 let's just be nice to each other. You know? <laughs> yeah, we're talking about some, some real love. Yeah. Yeah. Real love, real respect. Yeah. 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 Um, is there anything you particularly want us to emphasize in the show's notes or you want to tell the listeners now about Fuel Ed? It's just an honor to talk with you, Kelly. Um, I hope we get to have more conversations because there's so much to uncover and discover here. But is there anything you'd like to emphasize? Right. Yeah, we're just scratching the surface. Yeah. Um, you know, I just... I will, I love to send out a message of respect for all the educators who might listen. Um, you know, having lived with an educator and obviously being very, very invested in the system, knowing that uh, it could bring me to tears, just knowing how tired so many of you are. Oh. Um, and to know that burnout is real and you feel it in your body and that that's not how it's supposed to be. Um I, I guess I want to just validate that experience for educators and yeah. Um, yeah, we do, we have a lot of free events for educators. So um, if your listeners are looking for a space to come and receive that empathy, um, our website is fueledschools.org and you can find um, all kinds of resources there as well as if you're an admin or if you um, influence and admin administrator. We have a lot of programs as well, um, that we think that pretty much any educator would really benefit from. So it's just an honor to be here. And, 
um, really grateful for the time and just, just generally feel grateful for educators and what they're, what they're doing. Well, God bless you and the work you're doing. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Really appreciate it. It's essential. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Talk to you soon, Wendy. Bye.